Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films, and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, we welcome Australian native Vernon Wells, an actor and producer who most of you will remember as Wes, the iconic rolling villain in Mad Max 2, also known as The Road Warrior, and who has also appeared in such film favorites as Weird Science, Commando, and scores of indie thrillers too numerous to mention here. Welcome, Vernon. Thank you, Ruben. My pleasure to be here. By the way, I heard today uh, that the strike may be over, which uh, would probably be good news to everybody. Have you been affected much by the strike? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's affected everybody. Um, it's just a, a shame that sometimes you look at these things and think this probably could have been um, fixed at the last roundabout that we did um, rather than wait until now to suddenly go AI is going to become something that's going to be very, very uh, annoying. My my wife's company uh, many moons ago uh, was doing work for the university here in Los Angeles and they were doing stuff with um, cultures that were slowly but surely vanishing off the face of the earth. And one of them was they had this old um, Indian gentleman, uh, a chieftain, and he uh, was a three-dimensional figure. And uh, you would push a button and uh, he would come up on, on in front of you. And no matter where you walked, he, he saw him, um, his back, his front, his sides. But you could ask him any question you wanted. There was no set criteria for questions and he would answer them and back then it was just intelligent uh, computer because you had a computer that if the same question was asked often enough then the computer understood what that question was and would always have that answer but when you look back on it you think that was the birth of AI because even back then we were doing this whole thing where, where we were giving a three-dimensional character a voice and um, a personality. And we're doing it now. And way back then, somebody should have said, you know what? Hmm. One day they're going to start getting rid of actors and using puppets. Um, <laughs> well, already knew. I mean, um, I've done quite a few games, uh, voice quite a few games. So, I mean, that's the same thing. You get on a game, nobody uses your voice. Right. They, they use your voice on the game. So it's 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 similar to what we're talking about with AI. Um, believe me, I'm afraid of AI because, to me, AI is what uh, Orwell was talking about in his 1999 um the world will be taken over by a higher intelligence and that higher intelligence will most probably be a computer. And even the gentleman who uh, brought AI to where it is today has stated in, in a, uh, an interview, AI will be the death of mankind. Basically because AI learns, reasons, figures things out and then takes 
the best route to do to remove that object. We're an object. We're we're removable because you know we're always trying to put our finger in everything. We're and, also we're also an amazingly stupid species that keeps destroying our own planet hmm. and getting in ridiculous wars oh. that kill millions. And uh, I I would almost hope that if AI does take over, it makes the world a safer, gentler place. But you're absolutely right. They'll probably figure out a way to get rid of humans. Yeah, it's 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 funny that we. It's always, isn't it always the way, even in, I, I love harking back to a lot of some of the films I've done, is that when you create something, you produce it, it is your baby, your child, and you nurture it, and you give it all this intelligence, and you give it all these things, and you, you know, you're so proud of yourself. And then all of a sudden it says, you know what, I don't need you. And you go, mm. <laughs> but that is the point, is that they don't have our reasoning of oh gee you know he's, he's put so much work into doing this maybe i should just be a little gentler with him they're, they're more um he's a he's a he's a problem get rid of him yeah the i think the empathy gene is what you're talking about and that may be removed i i'm all we're always remembering the voice of how the computer from 2001 where kier delays pleading for him to open the airlock and Hal says, uh, I don't think I can do that, Dave. <laughs> yes. And that's the point. Um, and, and I mean, we've always looked at it as something that would always just be in movies as a sort of, you know, will help us put in the backgrounds or we can take three people and turn them into 3,000. Well, uh, being a writer myself, uh, I tested the waters a little bit just out of curiosity to see if this chat gbt or whatever you call it could help me solve a little story problem and i was stunned i was literally stunned how intelligent the answer was i was mm -hmm. expecting a bunch of nonsense and i got some <laughs> i got some very interesting feedback so tell me when you were a boy growing up in australia were you a film going family did you guys like to go to the movies I grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere in Australia. Um, no, we definitely weren't. <laughs> yeah, well, how, how far was the nearest town? Uh, Rushworth was 65 miles one way, and then oh. other one the other way, Colbynavon, which was a much smaller town. It had nothing in it. was probably 40 45 miles the other way. Um, I grew up with, with a radio and listening to all of the um, radio shows like Biggles and Superman and Batman, um, the little 10-minute uh, clips that you got in the morning. And, uh, before I went to school, I'd be sitting listening to them. They always ended up the same way. And it always it was funny. As I grew older, I suddenly realized how dumb we are. Um, it would be... You know, da, 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 da. tune in tomorrow to find out if Superman can get away from you. And you're like, oh, my God, I've got a cue. Oh, to granddad, tomorrow. Uh, uh, and you're so, so excited. And and the next morning, you're there waiting to find out. And as I grew older, I went, if he well, died. Yeah, so I, you're telling me you, you didn't have a television. No, we didn't have a TV. The first time I saw TV was when it first came to Australia, which was 
for the Olympic Games in 1956, I believe. And it was a black and white. And it was yay big. Little 12-inch by 12-inch screen, little tiny did, did you say when you first came to Australia or when TV first came no, to Australia? TV first came to Australia. Oh, right, because you obviously were living in Australia. And I was born there. You were born there. Now, uh, so your father was a farmer? Uh, no, my grandfather was. I, oh. I grew up with my grandfather. My mother divorced my father when I was 18 months old. Oh. Um, and he was a very violent uh, human being, and I became one of the things he became violent to. Um, so my mother... Um, took me out of that, sent me up the country to my grandfather's, and I grew up on the, the farm with my grandfather and grandmother. What kind of crops was he growing? Uh, we had sheep, cattle, oh. wheat, and um, lucerne for the cattle feed. Uh, and that was basically about it. Sheep mostly. Sheep was a big commodity because uh, sheep back then, well, they still are, I believe, were exported to... Um, Japan and Asia, China and places like that, um, and cattle. Um, and what used to get me is they were never slaughtered. They were um, sent alive because on a ship for three weeks or whatever time it took, if you've got something in a freezer and anything goes wrong, you lose it. Whereas if it's um, alive, all you're doing is feeding it until you get there. And then you've got a... Um, a nice fresh meat or whatever um but that was an, an animal an animal has just walked into the room there i think that's your little pup that's, that's edward he had Ed, sir edward thinks he owns the place he <laughs> so um you grew up on a farm you went to school i did, when you went to school did you discover drama early on or was this much later no drama never came into it. I, I never, in my wildest expectations, thought I would be an actor or actually wanted to be an actor. My whole thing, once I, I moved back to Melbourne uh, with my mother, was I got fascinated with behind the scenes, with directing, producing, um, seeing, and I, I got myself a job um, with one of the top um, production companies that did commercials and um, things in Australia and uh, worked for one of their top directors and um, went through the steps of, of learning how to become a producer. And that meant that they had a five-story building and I started on the uh, ground floor and worked my way up each level until I became at the top level and then I was considered good enough to go out and, and direct a uh, to uh, produce a commercial and that was where it all started and that, that was what I loved I loved the, the my brain ticks over all the time um, so I, I love the fact that I could as, um, look at something and decide how it would end and then put the pieces together in the middle and you know on a commercial that's basically what you do you get your beginning and your end so that you know your time you've got and then you put it together so that you've got everything you have to have in it and that was what I loved and um, I got asked to do a stage play called um, Hosanna which was by Michelle Tremblay and it was uh, about Montreal wanting to secede from uh, Canada and become a free French-speaking county in the middle of... Uh, Sounds like they still want to do that. 
Yes. And, uh, of course, the government said then and now, not happening. <laughs> um, and Michelle Tremblay wrote a, a play called Hosanna, which is basically about a transvestite and her boyfriend, two people, and her one night in her life, which is her crowning glory, which I destroyed. Um, and uh, it took a long time to, to get me to do it. Number one, um, I uh, the minute they said, you know, we've got this play, we'd love you to be in. And I was like, uh, um, I was like, uh, uh, um, I really don't want to do that. And uh, they said, well, it's a really brilliant script and blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, so what's it about? And they said, a transvestite and a boyfriend. And I went, well, see ya. <laughs> uh, I was out of it. Um, you know, I played football, for goodness sake, and, and grew up on a farm, wrestled cattle. You know, I wasn't going to be someone's boyfriend. Um, and it just... Never, never, no. And eventually I got talked into doing it, which is the reason you were talking to me, believe me, because I never would have been here. Um, I mean, you you easily could have become a director based on your interest in production. I would have been a director, yeah. And I have been a director, still am a director. Um, but um, I did this stage play. It became a, an incredible hit in the uh, gay community in Melbourne. And it was supposed to play for, I believe, six weeks between two major productions. You know, it's a filler, as they call it. It ended up playing for four and a half months to pack houses. Oh, wow. So this is a big, big coming out party for you. Not literally, uh, but... Yes, yes. <laughs> coming out party is just, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, <laughs> George Miller's girlfriend, Sandy Gore, um, who was in a, another play, and in a, in Melbourne, and I think in all over Australia, in the big cities, they had a, a thing that on a Friday night, the whatever play was playing, they they would have a twelve o'clock um, season, uh, you know, to go for all the people in other plays could come and watch the play, and that was the only way you got to see most of the play. So every Friday there was a different play that you could go and see. And Sandy Gore saw mine and rang George and said, um, I've found uh, Wes. I think you should come and see this guy. He walks on the stage and you can't take your eyes off him. I was first thing I'd ever done. I think the reason you couldn't take your eyes off me was I was shaking so much that I looked like a bloody jello sack. <laughs> I looked like neat. And I was terrified. Um and George actually never came to see me. <laughs> he came after the play had closed. And um, I was about to do another play, which was called The Birthday Party. And um, I was playing one of the two assassins in The Birthday Party, which was um, an amazing script once again. And uh, I went out and I had a cup of coffee with him. And we just virtually sat there and told each other stupid jokes and carried on like a pair of idiots. And he left and went back to Sydney. I left and went off to rehearsals. And then I rang my agent and I said, who the hell was that? And they said, George Miller. I went, what's a George Miller? And she said, he's the director of um, Mad Max. I went, uh-huh, what's Mad Max? <laughs> a film, Vernon. And I went, oh. I haven't seen it. 
And she went, oh, like, if you were on the phone, I'm going to kill him. I'm seriously going to kill him. And she said, do yourself a favor. It's playing as a double header at the drive-in. Just take your ass along and have a look at it. And I went, okay. So I go to the drive-in, me and a carload of idiot friends. And the first film on was actually Duel, um, Steven Spielberg's first movie. Oh, sure, sure, with Dennis Weaver. Yep. So we watched Duel, and then after that was the one I'm supposed to watch. So the next morning, my agent rang me, and she said, did you see it? And I said, yep. And she said, what do you think? I said, Duel is the most amazing film that's ever been made. And she went, I really don't think I'd say that to George Miller if I'm sure, you know, I'd be very guilty. And I went, oh, shit, you're right. Um, uh, his was good. It was good. And she went, uh. anyway, I got asked to go up to, to um, Sydney. And I had read the script by that time, and it scared the living daylights out of me. I, I just. In what sense? I couldn't. Do, in, in Well, I'd never done anything. I'd done little tiny bits on television, you know, one line here, two lines there. Mostly I was drunk, sitting on the side of a mountain, waiting to be tried to run down the mountain, screaming like a, an idiot. Um, no solid acting, period. And, and having George Miller was going to put me in a movie as basically the lead with Mel Gibson, I was like, not going to happen. And so, you know, George George and I had a little fun thing going. He would say, um, yes, I love the idea of the costume. We'll have you do this, 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 this. What do you think? And I go, oh, I, I'm not doing the film, George. Uh-huh. Now, when you, we shave your head, we're going to have to do it before we go up the Broken Hill so that the sun, you get used to sun on your head so you don't get sunburned. Uh-huh. I'm not going to do it, George. And... Um, we need to know, and I swear to God, this went on, and finally I went, I'll do the bloody thing. I mean, it was just the most ridiculous. I, he took no notice of me. His mind was made up. It didn't matter what I said. George had decided I was Wes. And so, the, so he, you don't want to do this. Nope. Uh, what convinced you that you should do it? Because you could have walked away. What convinced me that I should do it? I think more than anything, what convinced me that I should do it was was this sheer um, thing that I'm not a coward, and and to walk away was to chicken out and be a little girl, and I didn't. I, there was no way I was going to do that, so I was going to go and do my best. What I wasn't afraid of doing the film. I was afraid of fucking. Excuse the French. I was afraid of screwing up the film. My fear was that I didn't have the expertise to carry what George wanted me to do. It wasn't about being an actor. I didn't want to be an actor. I wanted to be a director, but um, getting into this, and I just had this fear of, of that. And then George Miller is a brilliant human being. What he did for the first week before we went into production was everyone except for Mel Gibson in the, in the leads, you know, like in the main cast, wrote a biography of the day your character was born till the day he ended up in the movie. So we built this, and then every morning we'd bring it in, we'd read it to George Miller um, and the other two writers that would be there uh, sitting, and um, they would go, nah, that's, that, that's crap, throw that out. Nah, that won't work. Oh, that's good, keep that, keep that. And so they would go through it and you, while you're reading. And then they'd say, we'll see you tomorrow morning. 
Now, so, you're you're writing about Wes, obviously. Do you yeah. remember anything about him that you wrote? Oh, yeah. I I decided that he was basically a um a survivalist. He'd been in the uh Vietnam War when he was that age. But when he was growing up, he fought for everything he got because he was always, and strangely enough, that was my life. He was always the one out, the outsider, because he had he wasn't born there, you know, like in Melbourne. If you're born outside Melbourne and you're up in the country, you're one of them. And uh, so I wrote it from that perspective of, of, of him being an outsider who was shunned by society in his own way, and he had to always be the one that was tough enough, strong enough, and smart enough to get it, get things done. So I put him in that, in that, and he was a survivalist. His whole creed was to survive. That was it. That was all that mattered. And so that's how I, I made him. And um, strangely enough, it, it still, there were gaps that, that I couldn't fill. And I was on the set one day, and I said to George, what should I do here? And he said, what, what are you talking about? And I said, I, I don't And he said, let me ask you a question. I said, sure. He said, end of the world comes. Not from an atomic bomb, not from anything that man does. It could be a flashbang from the sun. Everything's gone. No computers, no lights, no electricity, no phones, nothing. The end of your street, there's this huge supermarket, and it's packed with bottled goods, canned goods, you name it enough to survive on for probably the next 10 years. You and your friends and the people you want to be there. What would you do? I said, I'd go down and get what I needed. And he said, on your own? I said, no, I'll take a couple of my friends. I need people to help me carry it. And he said, uh-huh. And while you're doing this, you hear a noise, you look out, and there's a group coming from the block up the way. They're coming to claim what you've got. What would you do? I said, shoot the fuck. Right. That was exactly how he explained the character to me. Now, actors, when actors get wardrobe, uh, I've often heard actors say that it helps you define the part because when you live in your wardrobe, you begin to feel the character you were. I think in uh, in terms of types of wardrobe, Wes's wardrobe may be one of the most outrageous costumes ever worn in a movie uh, in, in modern times, uh, what what was your reaction when you began to see what they were going to put you in? I knew right up front what they were going to put me in. Um, my biggest thing was I, I fought with uh, uh, Nora, the um, wonderful McHughie, the, the wonderful um, lady that did all the, the costuming. And I, I fought with her day and night that I wanted something on my butt. And I said, not so much to cover it up, but more, mostly because I'm jumping on and off a goddamn motorcycle. I'm going to be chafed from a hole to the end of my leg. So I need something like a, a, a butt flap, like an Indian butt flap. And eventually George agreed and I got the butt flap. And then the shoulder pads. They didn't have feathers in them. They didn't have anything. They were just American gridiron shoulder pads, which I, I would bleed my neck was cut so badly I would bleed because, as you can see in that photo, I'm always moving my head and it was rubbing down the sides of this costume because it wouldn't move. 
I mean, my head moved and my neck. And that became a problem. And this was in rehearsals. And so what they decided to do was they put sheepskin in it. And it was funny because George was standing there the day they did it and I put it on. And he looked at me and he went, going to have to fix that. Looks just a little tiny bit too gay. <laughs> and uh, I was like, yes, sir. And I was trying to figure out how to do it. And apparently, I don't know if the story's true or not true, but somebody saw a rooster on a fence, this big rooster with the big tail, and very proud, standing there you know, and, and doing his cock-a-doodle-doo thing. And they went, ah, and, and mentioned it to um, our costume lady. And um, she went, perfect. And she got all these... Um, feathers, black feathers, and put them on a, a band and had it sewn into the costume, and that became the costume. Yeah, there's kind of a bird-like quality to the costume, definitely. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I, now, I read a quote. Um, um, Mel Gibson was reported to have called you barometer bum yep. because when your cheeks got purple, it meant everybody needed to go inside and warm up. Yep. <laughs> I was always up high on top of something with my bare ass in the wind. And the problem was we were in a valley between two mountains. And so what would happen is that then there was a, a mountain range below us that the wind would come over that mountain range through the snow and come up and, and come up the valley we were in. And by the time it got to me, it was like 300 degrees below zero. And so my butt would free. You have no idea. And so what they, they got this whole thing of, of uh, barometer bump, mini purple, get him out of here. So that was the way we decided when we're all cold, it was because my butt was purple. Um, but apart from that, it was kind of fun. Well, it's funny because it's a desert movie. Yep. But from, from what I gather, it was not a hot desert movie. It was a freezing desert movie. Uh, yes. And there's one scene in it where if you're uh, watching it, uh, where we're all out and where there's a camp, a big fire, and all, everybody's out, they're doing the nunchucks and all that kind of stuff. If you can slow the film down, and like if you've got a, a CD and you can stop it right there, you'll see the snow falling through the frame. It was snowing when we did that. Hi, Gracie, Bob. Hi. No, don't be stupid. My wife just got back from teaching. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was uh, kind of a, a whole interesting thing on the set. Um, well, the physicality of this movie, when I, I saw, I, I missed the first one. So Road Warrior was the first one I saw. And when it starts and then all of a sudden it widens out to widescreen, I mean, you're just blown away by the physicality of the movement in the movie. And your army, your, yours and Humongous's army of vehicles is one of the most interesting collection of, um, you know, it's interesting. Post-apocalyptic post movies, there have been dozens of them since. I mean, they're almost a genre in themselves. Uh, everybody's done one now or five or ten. And Road Warrior was, I would consider, the first really widescreen post-apocalyptic epic. You can go over and work on the computer, sweetie. Yeah. 
And uh-huh. I, 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 no one had ever seen stuff like that before. So we were all riveted to the screen and the movement. I mean, George Miller obviously today is known for a guy who really knows where to put the camera and really get inside these things. Now, one thing I noticed, you um, you have a partner on your vehicle. I guess his name is Golden Youth. Is that his real name? Yep, Golden Youth. Golden Youth. So mm-hmm. uh, is Golden Youth still around? I have no idea. Okay, so he Golden so he, the, the impression you get from the movie is that he's some kind of weird sex partner. But I also read in reality, you were more of a father figure for this guy, and he was his son. Is that true? Yes, there was a little piece left out of the film, and I always used to say to George Craig, you turned me into a homosexual George. And he went, eh. It was just like, it was kind of, he, he would just, but no, how it originally was, in there's a book called Road Warrior, which is the script, of the original script. And uh, originally, right when we come through and, and the uh, there's the homestead up on the hill and the marauders are all going up and then it all starts to burn and there's people being killed, I ride up as I do in the movie. But in the book, I ride up and I park my bike and I'm watching and this young blonde-headed kid comes running out of the house and one of the marauders is chasing him. He grabs him and he grabs him by the hair and, and pulls him up. And he's got his, he's about to cut his throat. And I, I, I stop him. I go, no. And I bring him here. And he brings him over and I put him on the back of the bike. And that's the last time you see him as a child. The next time you see him is when we're riding towards Mel in, in, the, in the car. And I get shot in the arm. Um, so he became my surrogate son, and that's the reason I was so upset when he got killed with the boomerang, for no other reason that I had basically um, brought this kid up, and I was very, very peeved that uh, he had been killed. Um, but there was no, but, but and George explained that to me too. He said, the whole point is, Vernon, there is no sexuality in that time. There is no male, female, straight, gay. They're just people. That's it. How yeah. how comfortable were the, were you working with machinery? Because you, having grown up on a farm, you weren't riding motorcycles. And, uh, or you I, were? I rode motorcycles from when I was young, very young. Oh, okay. Uh, going out to get, I rode horses and motorcycles, rounding up cattle and, and things. That was uh, the way of, of going out and getting them. Because, you know, when, you, when you're when you living on a farm and you've got five paddocks, and each paddock is about 100 acres, it's like a bloody long way to go if you're going to walk, uh, which I had to do a couple of times. Believe me, when I got thrown on my butt off the horse, I had to walk home. Um but no, I, I'd ridden motorbikes and all, all, all that stuff. I was very, very used to doing it um, and drove everything that you could drive because, you know, I'd come combine ho- harvesters and, and tractors and, and um, a huge, big semi-trailer with uh, a double, double back trailer system for carrying wood that was our family's um, business. And so I was used to all that. It was just 
second nature to me. It wasn't something that I had to go and learn. So jumping on a motorbike and all that stuff was easy for me. I just enjoyed it. So aside from getting kind of a frozen butt once in a while and getting a little chafed here and there, were there any close calls for getting real physical injury during the shoot or were you pretty good? Um, no, I got my elbow chipped with the boomerang. It's actually, you see part of it in the, in the film uh, when the uh, feral kid throws it at me and I go like that. And then it cuts to something else. When I went like that, it actually hit me right on the tip of the of the funny bone. Ooh, that yeah. sounds painful. People, people said that's a funny bone. You are not kidding. It is very funny, hysterical when you get hit with a bloody iron thing. Um, but that was basically for me the worst thing. That George is is a maniac for safety. I mean, he really is. He's a maniac for safety. He, made sure that everybody was always safe and that you were doing things that you knew what you were doing. You couldn't just jump on a motorbike and say, yeah, I'll ride this. Uh, it didn't work like that. He, he had to know that you could actually handle a motorbike and ride on it and do the stuff you did on it. So tell us a little bit about Gibson. You don't really have close dialogue scenes with him. It's really, you know, you're at war from afar. But tell us a little bit about what it was like to work with Mel. Mel and George were the reason I managed to get the film done. Um, George was always there to to guide me, and Mel was always there to hold me up. Uh, yeah, if I got to a point where I would look like I was going to burst into tears and become a little girl, Mel was always the one to come and put his arm around my shoulder and say, hey, dude, you're doing wonderfully. Don't let it get you down. Just be and get in there and kick ass and be like, Bleh. yeah, so. <laughs> and, and so, no, I, I don't have a bad word to say about Mel. Um, he was just one of those people who was incredibly kind to me. And uh, right when I need, he could have been the exact opposite. He could have said, you know, screw you, you bloody amateur, go away. Never. He always stood up for me, always made sure that, that everything I did, I was safe and I was happy. And George was the same. George would always make sure that what I was doing was working for me as well as for him. Um, and I think that's why he got the performance he got, because he left me to develop what I was doing, even though I didn't know at the time that that's what I was doing. He would just say, so, you know, where do you think you should go with it? And, and I'd say, oh, and I'd, big eyes and roar, and he'd go. And so I mean, all that stuff came about because George allowed me to be me. I mean, Wes is a very frightening character, the kind of guy you don't want to meet in a dark alley. Now, George said, you... You uh, you've played your share of villains over the years, and uh, I it's I've often heard from actors that the villain parts are always the best parts because yep. you can be unpredictable, and you can bring in elements of character that are totally abnormal and work. I mean, um, do you think? the work you did on as Wes and the experience of making this film made you uh, a much more effective villain in the future? Because I'm sure you didn't plan on playing these villains, but you're very good at that. Uh, yeah, I think the, the thing with Wes is that I learned very quickly 
the villain is the hero. The hero is the villain. And that's how Wes, if you if you think about Wes, Wes always, Wes always considered himself to be the hero chasing the villain. And that's the way it, it works, is because no villain thinks he's a villain. Because if he did, then the whole thing falls apart. Um, villains consider themselves to be the good guy who is trying to do something, and that a-hole over there, he's the one trying to stop me. So he's the villain right over there. Go talk to him. You know, it was that kind of thing. So I learned through that film that the villain is the hero. And if you play him that way, he becomes much, much deeper, more mysterious, harder to fathom. It's, it's not just, oh, yeah, he's a villain. He shoots people or he strangles them. He does something because there's so many layers go into him being the hero. And I learned that on that film. And it's carried me for the rest of my career, which is now 50. Vernon, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you did. You, you grew up on a farm with no television. When yeah. you finally started to work in the business, first in commercials and doing all of the production work, did you start to catch up on your movie going? Did, did you learn a few things from the, um, seeing movies? I um, I used to, when I first went down to Melbourne and lived with my mother, um, I used to go, as they say, I think you had it here too. Every Saturday they had a Saturday matinee, which the kids went to. You know, my mother would give me, uh, I don't know what you call it here, but um, it was, a, a, I guess it's like uh, 25 cents. And um, up I'd go and I would get, you know, like five cents worth of broken bickies and, and an ice cream and a drink. And then I'd pay to get into the movie. And we sit and watch all these, once again, Biggles, not Biggles, but it's Superman and, and um, Batman, all these others, you know, and they're always right at the end of this short they're hanging off the edge of a building or they're about to be stabbed. And, and you're like, oh my God, no. Never, never understand why I could never go. Oh, what the hell? Even be there next week? I haven't got a freaking film. Well, and, you're you're talking about cliffhangers. You're talking yeah. about they show the the whole series series. Yeah, I was doing the same thing. I my mother gave me a dollar. The the in, the entrance fee was thirty five cents. You'd buy a big box of popcorn for a quarter and a coke that was ten cents, and then you'd get one of these big lollipops and you could suck on it all day and you were good to go. Yep. And I was seeing, uh, when I was going, we're, we're about the same age, 50 science fiction movies, The Day the Earth Stood Still, Forbidden Planet, The Blob, Invasion of the Saucermen, uh, The Fly, Them, all these creatures. I But in Australia, we didn't have um, all of that. A lot of the stuff we had was English. Oh. Australia got a lot of English film, a lot of English. And when we got television, a lot of uh, English television, or most of our um, uh, things on on the radio, even the radio plays and the, the shorts and things were English. Um, so I grew up in a in a much more subtle um, way with with the, the English rather than the American screaming and yelling right in your face. I saw <laughs> subtlety about me, and that was. Do, do you do you remember a film called Village of the Damned? It was an English film. Yes. Little children with the little eyes. Yep, and 
when someone came to town and <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, so you make... I, I, I learned very quickly what I could do with my eyes. <laughs> yeah, the Wes had well, even this picture of Wes here, you kind of you're kind of giving us the eye thing there a little bit. Oh yeah. Now you go to you later on, you go to work with uh Arnold Schwarzenegger in commando. Uh-huh. And uh that was a whole different experience. Once again, you're playing the heavy. Yep. Uh, it's so funny. I recently as we all saw the Tarantino movie. Uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, I'm sure you saw it. Yes. And and uh, DiCaprio is explaining to Al Pacino that he's always playing the heavy on these TV shows, and it's kind of like a little bit of the Vernon Wells credo. You're you're brought in not for the love interest. You're brought in to play the heavy. Yep. Now after a while, did you start to say I want something a little different, or you were happy? Um. No, I was uh, augmenting what I was doing with working the other side of the camera. Um, but I was getting um, a little sick of, uh, in fact, uh, one director rang me up one day and was talking to me about the part. And I said, you know what? I can solve all your problems. And he went, oh, what? I said, I'll send you a six-foot cutout, and then I'll do a voiceover for you over the phone, and you just drag it around the set. It'll be much cheaper. <laughs> because that was what they were doing to me. They were having me come in and play. I'll, I'll give you one example. I, I went for an audition. I'm in a room, and there's probably 15 people around the table, you know, producers and the casting people. I go in, and the casting director says to me, um, uh, do you understand the character burden? I said, yeah, very well. And he said, you sure? And I went, yeah, I'm sure. And he said, well, you know, we're looking for something very um, specific, so um, do you mind if I tell you what I, what I think? And I said, please. And he said, did you ever see the film Road Warrior? Now, yes, actually. Remember the Mohawk guy in, in that? And I said, oh... I think I do, yeah. By this time, I'm convinced that it's a setup that they're doing one of those hidden camera things, right? So I decide to play along. And, uh, and you know, and he's asking me these questions. And it dawns on me halfway through, he has no bloody idea who I am. And I thought, oh, well, I'll go with it. So I do the audition, finish the audition, and uh, the whole room is very quiet. All these people just sit there very wide-eyed looking at me. And uh, every time I moved, they all moved their chairs back. You know, it was one of those things where the whole the whole group was afraid that if, if I came too close, I might bite someone. Um, so I was just sitting there, and the guy looked at me, and he said, amazing. He said, that was so good, so good. He said, you know, we're still trying to find the actor that portrayed that character in um, Mad Max. But if we can't find him, um, you're the logic choice. We would be more than happy to offer to you. And I went, huh. Well, I don't think I want to do it anyway. So don't worry about me and left. And um, I, I, as I was leaving, the guy said, well, do you have one of your headshots? I said, of course. And I threw him, like, flipped across the table. And it had picture of me, picture from Commando, picture from Road Warrior. That landed right in front of him, and he picked it up. He went, "Oh, this is." <laughs> to 
me, I, I'm not that big-headed that I think people should know who I am. I don't give a damn. If you're a casting director, I demand that you know who I am. F, yes. Bring me in there. You better fucking know what I've done because otherwise, why am I there? So that was the whole reasoning there is I was just so pissed off because this man had no clue who I was. And he was referring to the movie that I'd starred in as if I had no clue what, about what it was, the movie itself. But I was like, oh, that's too much for me. Now, you, you've done a lot of indie thrillers. In fact, oh, yeah. uh, in fact, I looked on IMDb today and you have like 10 movies that you've been in or that are coming out shortly. It's like you're, you and Nicolas Cage make all the movies in Hollywood. And... <laughs> uh, I had a ball through the pandemic. I worked all the way through the pandemic. I'm not surprised because you you just I mean you fill in a lot you 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 uh, fill in a lot of boxes with what you can bring to the table. Now, having come from a production background where you know about filmmaking, um, it must be very frustrating for you sometimes to be on one of these indie thrillers where people don't really know what they're doing. Um. It is, but I always made a, a deal with myself that when I'm on a set as an actor, I'm an actor. I don't try to direct. I don't try to tell anybody what to do. If a director asks me for my opinion, I'll give it. Otherwise, I just shut F up. Um, it's not my job. But I have been able to, to, to learn throughout my career, a lot of very subtle ways of changing the stupidity to work. Mm -hmm. So I can actually just be there and, and, and I'll go, this is dumb, and, and be able to work it so that it, it becomes quite logical what's going on. Um, but I wouldn't say to a director, you know, that's dumb. Why don't you do yeah. it this way? The only time you... I've ever said it was, and I didn't say it was dumb. I was working on a, a project and um, we'd done like 14 takes of this and it was such a simple scene and I just couldn't get it right and finally I was just up to my eyeballs with it and I just said to, to, to pull the director aside and I said look if you want to get this to work do this this and this for god's sake we'll be here all day anyway oh they did that and we had it in one take it was just that there, it wasn't because I was any more brilliant than him. It was because I was looking at it from the outside in. He couldn't see it. He was too close to it. I, I wasn't close to it. I could see where the problem was. And so I just told him. I never told him like you dumbass. I just said, look, I, I think. And um, I said, you know, see what you think. And we did it and it worked. Um, I am very fortunate. 90% of the people I work with are great. I mean, really, even on the um, the smaller films, I work with some incredibly good and a lot of directors and actors that have gone on um, to become very famous. Um, so um, I, I worked with them before they got there, but they always had that little, you know, when you worked with them, you went, hmm, this boy is going somewhere. Um, so um, I have, as I said, been very fortunate in the fact that I've worked with some amazing people doing some amazing projects. And to me, doing a smaller film uh, in regards to a bigger film, the smaller films to me are a lot more fun simply because you don't have the money, the time, or the ability to screw around. 
you've actually got to come on set knowing your lines, knowing your character, knowing what you're doing. It's that simple. And uh, you then do it. And it was very funny. I did a film before the strike with a good friend of mine, a young lady who wrote and produced her first film. And I played a fallen priest in it. And it was just one of these really cool roles and uh, won a couple of best acting for it. And I was just so thrilled with the whole thing. And she went to Cannes and she rang me and she went, I have a problem with you. And I went, what? What I do? She said, every, every poster I look at has your friggin' face on it. She said, you have <laughs> no idea how many films you're in. <laughs> Posters everywhere in cans with you on them. And I went, ooh, shit, I'm sorry. Um, but I think it's, it's to me now, it's it's something I've worked for all my life. I didn't become who I am because I walked out of a film set and everybody went, wee, let's make him a major star. I had to, to work from the ground up to get to this point. And now I'm at a, a, a wonderful point in my life where I get offered some beautiful scripts, and most of them are independents. You know, I'm doing a film next year in Australia, which I'm one of the producers on, called Island in the Stars. This is a wonderful, wonderful movie. I mean, oh man, when it's done, it's going to become a Star Wars. It is so effing good. And what how it came about was the director of it, Tom Conkle, uh, directed me in a, a film called... Um, Oh, gosh. Um, Trouble is my business. God, my brain froze there for a second. Trouble is my business, which was film noir, shot black and white, and they had to colorize it. I hated it, but the black and white is really wonderful. And he said to me one day, and he said, he said, Bernie, give me three films that you would love to do as your bucket list before you kick uh, the bucket. I went, oh, God, thanks, man. That's really good. Um, I said, so before I die, huh? Well, I'd love to do um, Treasure Island and play the pirate because I've always been fascinated with that role. Um, I just love the way it was done. And I said, I'd love to be the captain of the Nautilus. And um, I said, I would love to do a real version of a vampire movie because the vampire wasn't 25. He was 63 years old in the, in the, in the book. So he'd lived a life. He had all these things, you know. He wasn't a child that was doing it. And I said, that's the three I'd love. And he said, oh, okay. And about two months later, he sent me the um, synopsis for Island in the Sky, which is virtually Treasure Island in uh, space. Oh, okay. And it's just an amazing, amazing script. It is just brilliant. And they have, it's being shot in Australia. They have a lot of uh, wonderful, wonderful people there. We're um, talking to Mel Gibson's people. Um, it would be, we're very interested in getting Mel in it. There's a lot of other wonderful, Tony Bonner, another iconic Australian actor is doing it. Um, we have some wonderful people and uh, everybody, I think everybody in the cast except the two are Australian. So, how long, how long have you been in the States permanently? Cause you eventually obviously moved here. Um, I've been permanently in the States for, well, I've been here for 50-something years, so I've uh, been here permanently, I would say, about 40 of them. Oh, wow. How do you feel about Australia these days? Has the country changed much? 
I always used to say Australia reminded me of America 15 years ago. And I never knew how true that would become. Australia is like it was 15 years ago here with the gangs, the gang wars, the murder bikies, the drugs, you name it. And it's just not the Australia I grew up in. It's like I go home and I'm like, oh my God, you know, this is just. Uh, oh, that's not good. That's not good. Of course, then again, America isn't what it was 15 years ago either. That's true. Um, well, the nice part is that I could go up to because a good friend of mine um, who always puts me in his movies, he's got this thing about me. Um, uh, I can go, Travis will bring me over and we work up in Queensland, uh, up in Cairns, the, the top of Australia. And it's a whole different um, um, scenario up there. You know, it's just how Australia was. And I love going up there. I think the most dangerous thing up there is very large crocodiles. Um, but apart from that, it's um, a, a great place to be. Um, did you did you get to know Paul Hogan at any time? Did you ever meet Paul? I believe at some stage in my fiery path, I met him at a, a dinner or a party or something. I've never worked with him. I've never actually been friends with him. But I believe I was introduced to him, and um, I was kind of um, quite impressed to just be introduced to him because he was like one of the first Australian icons out here. And we we all discovered him on those commercials where he put another one on the Barbie. I mean, before even he did the Crocodile Hunter, it was that was for the, for the now story. Vernon. Um, you've made so many of these thrillers. If I was going to pick one or two that I should sample, because I know that Road Warriors and the Weird Sciences and the Commando movies, can you pick two movies that you did indie-wise that are must-see Vernon Wells shows? I don't know so much that they must-see Vernon Wells shows, but to me, they're um, wonderful movies. One is called The King of the Ants. Oh. And um, What's that about? It's basically about um, four criminal types who abduct this young kid and they hold him prisoner and they beat him every day around the head with a, a uh, nine iron until they rattle his brain so bad that he has no clue who, where, why or what. And then they train him to be an assassin um, and it backfires and in the end he comes back to get them. And as uh, the director said to me, you're the only one in the whole film who is redeemable, and you're the only one in the whole film who dies the worst death because no good deed goes unpunished, Mr. Well. <laughs> and it's true, I have the worst death of everybody. Um, but no, that that is a great little film. Uh, it just... It was a book written by an English gentleman, and it's just a, a it's so in your face, it's so gets you to the point where you just want to scream. Um, and uh, I've always loved it, I love doing it, I've always loved watching it. And um, the one I was talking about, um, Trouble is My Business, Tom Conkle's uh, film noir, exceptionally good film. And what part do you play in that? I play the um police captain, the corrupt cop in Los Angeles in 1940. Oh, okay. So it's a little bit like uh, 
I'm thinking of that movie with uh, Kim Basinger and Kevin Spacey. What's that movie? Seven. Um, Was that Seven? Uh, that's the one. I, I'm forgetting the name of it. It's about the 40s in uh, Los Angeles and the, the oh, cops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you, you know what I'm talking about. Another one you told me about. Well, this yeah. has been, uh, Vernon, this has been great because I've learned a lot more about you than I never knew from watching Wes tear up the scenery. <laughs> oh, I should ask you, uh, since you were in Commando, tell tell me what it was like working with Arnold. Arnold and, um, and Mel are the same. They're two big kids in a lolly shop. Well, you know, here they're not called lollies, they're sweets in a sweet shop. They, um, they just have fun. I mean, Mel pulls jokes continuously. Um, he was just a big kid. And Schwarzenegger was the same. I mean, him and his cronies disassembled my trailer because I kept bitching I had the smallest trailer. Um, so <laughs> I didn't have the smallest trailer. Um, so it's just, and it's fun working with them. It really, I, there's a quote by Arnold, which, you know, in an interview, and someone said, what was it like working with Bernard? And he said, he is the quietest, nicest man, like a big bear, cuddly, you love him. You say action, the motherfucker wants to cut your throat. <laughs> and and uh, he did that on a take, um, because when I first came over, and I'd never seen, met Arnold, I... Because I wasn't cast in the film, by the way. I got put in the film after it had been shooting for a few weeks because the guy that was playing the role I played, um, Arnie wasn't happy. And, and Anyway, I, I don't know the story. I didn't want to know the story. It's not my business. And I got brought over um, to fill in the part. And I was very tired, and I worked differently to Americans. And... Um, because I'm more watching where the camera is, where the lights are, where everything is when I'm rehearsing and doing the dialogue. But I, I want to see what level, you know, what what are my parameters? I can move here, there, and there. Um, and that's my my thing. And I was doing that, and I was very tired, very sleepy, so I was doing it very quietly. And um, Arnold called uh, Joel Silver over. He said, "This ain't gonna work. He's a pussy." And um, I'm an Australian. If you're going to call me a pussy, make sure you do it so I don't hear. Because when I do, I get really pissed. And so on the first take um, of the, that's, uh, the first scene I did was the one where he's tied to the table. I got the knife under his throat. I do the scene and uh, cut. And Joel walks over to, to Arnold and he said, so what are we, are we closing down to re- um, recast or, or what and apparently I can't vouch for it but apparently um, Swartz looked up at uh, Joel and said never give the motherfucker a real knife <laughs> and that was it we became great friends you know we, we had a lot of fun and made a really cool movie um, and I think it was more underestimating who I was and what I could do. Because um, I don't walk around the set in Vernon Wells. I walk around very quietly talking. I love the crews. I talk to all the crews. I'm, I'm more friendly with the crews than the actors. Um, because I, I tend to 
try to manifest who or what I'm playing without giving it away because then it's more the reaction you get is more likely to be real. You know, people are used to seeing me wandering around, you know, kissing girls and cuddling everybody. And then in the first scene, I've got a gun at their head threatening to blow their brains all across the room with this look on my face. They, they tend to be scared shitless, and that's real. Um, I did it in a rehearsal. Uh, no, sorry, in an audition. I was playing this cop who was wife, who had kidnapped these two young kids, his neighbours and his wife, as she was dying of cancer, and said, whatever you do, you have to get them married. They're, they're right for each other. They keep breaking up. They're dumb little shit, but you can do it. So I went, okay. So I'm doing this scene. I took with me, I have a 45 piece maker, but it's a prop. So I took the 45 with me. And when I did the scene, uh, nobody knew I had the gun. When I did the scene, I pulled the gun out and I shoved it in the, the, the guy's face. And I was doing the scene, and then the girl said something. I grabbed her by the head, and I put it in her mouth. And it, so I was like, you know, another word out of you, you little witch, I'll blow your brain. So that was just this real intense scene. Action, cut, stop. I sort of rubbed it off. And the two people that I, the kids that I was doing the scene with, they were actually cast in the film. They came out as I was getting, getting a cup of uh, coffee before I left. And they went, Oh my God, that was so unbelievable. That was wonderful. Oh my God, that was so good. And um, <laughs> my phone rang and it was my manager. And he went, What did you do? I'd been off the set for four minutes. Now, what do you mean? He said, you took a gun to an audition? I went, it was a, a prop. Joseph, I don't care. You took a gun. I said, yeah, character had a gun. I took a gun. He went, dear God, why me? And apparently, they were so scared of me that the guy that was doing the camera hadn't switched it on. <laughs> what are... What are... What are you like at home? Are you a, are you a little bit of a pussy cat at home? Uh, I'm just my my sister always says, "Don't poke the bear." <laughs> What's well, funny? Known as, I... I'm known as a cuddly bear. I love to cuddle people. I'm loved because that's how I was brought up. Is that you are kind of you know you cuddle people, you show them affection because that's what we all miss. Well, uh, our our mutual friend Branscombe Richmond. Oh, who, good lord! <laughs> talk about bears! <laughs> and yeah. you worked together. You met on Commando. Uh, no, actually, I met him before that. Um, I met him on a uh, there was a one of those convention things where they have all uh, the um, different loca location. Oh, like location expo. At, yeah, Location Expo. And I was there, um, and so was Branscombe. And I met him there. I was introduced to him. And uh, I met him there, and we got on, and uh, we became friends, and then on, on uh, Commando as well. So then, we're, and from that moment, we've always stayed. We're not in touch every day of our lives, but every so often, uh, he'll ring me or something. He rang me when they were doing... Uh, the, the brilliant film that I did for him, the first one I did was The Silent Natural, which was about the first um, dumb, um, deaf and dumb baseball player. And they had oh. to change all the rules in baseball because of him. Um, and uh, 
how what he went through trying just to play in the league. They didn't want him because they would have to, everything would have to change. He definitely dumped for Christ's sake. How can he have him in a team? And he went on to become one of the most famous baseball players. I think he's in um, baseball. Hall All the fame. Sure, sure. Um, and I got to be in that. Uh, Branscombe got me to do that. And he's got me to do a couple of other things. I just finished doing a film, Branscombe. Which now you guys are thick as thieves. I know, I know. <laughs> Well, we we have been listening some to some wonderful stories from Vernon Wells, and you've been listening to uh, Saturday Night at the Movies. Everyone, I appreciate you listening, and please uh, sign up and uh, get on our uh, uh, subscription list so that you can enjoy us every week. It's free. Uh, we're very free over here, <laughs> and. Uh, my, my uh, I'm Steve Rubin, your host. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. And Vernon, thank you so much for taking the time tonight for us. It's my pleasure, Steve. I, I seriously, I love uh, talking to the people who appreciate what I do because um, it makes me understand a little bit more about who I am. Well, we're all we're all lucky to have you in the business because you always add something to everything you appear in. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. You're welcome.